way. Praise God for Choir Sunday, huh? One of my personal favorites. I wish we did it four out of four or at least five out of five Sundays um, that we did Choir Sunday. Absolutely love that time. Thank you, Brother Jalen, for your great leadership in this space. We, um, on a regular basis, as we get a chance to fellowship with other pastors and um, share about the incredible grace that God has shown us and here through y'all. Uh, one of the areas that pastors often find themselves very grieved to, to fill is someone who is faithful in the worship space and provides great leadership there and uh, in the way that Jalen does it. And so we are, um, we are, I don't know if anybody envies us, um, but uh, I definitely am super grateful for that brother. Where did he disappear to? Um, and the work that he does. I'm also thankful for just our entire uh, group of, of folks who constantly labor without fail on this stage, whether this was your on Sunday or your off Sunday. Um, I know how it feels to sometimes feel like you have to be switched on all the time and you would love to just kind of sit and, uh, uh, and not have to play or sing, but I thank you for your selfless service. And uh, also, I'm deeply thankful for um, those of you who participate in Choir Sunday, I know some of you are like, this is not my gift, this is not my thing, oh please. And then you just decide to move yourself out of the way and say, you know what, I want to worship the Lord in this way and I want to serve the local body. And I am thankful for you, all of you that would do that would set yourself aside. And so, um, and just kind of talking through all of that selflessness that I see on this stage is just kind of a great segue into what we're going to be talking about today. And that is what it means to be a gospel-centered believer. A gospel-centered believer. And I'm going to be praying in a few minutes just to kind of tee up what we're going to be talking about. But uh, um, I was also moved by something else that Jalen did as he kind of paused as we had a little bit of a moment in our, in our worship that almost ended on an anticlimactic note, right? It was almost like we were just kind of in the moment, kind of feeling it at the performance level. And then he kind of shifted into another game. He was like, no, nah, let's redo that. Let's, let's, let's rewind that, you know? And, uh, and, we, and we went there, and I love that. How many people are honest enough to admit that there are times where you feel stuck during worship? You feel stuck. Yeah, yeah, there we go, some honesty hands. Yeah, you know, and what I mean by stuck is where the stuff, the things that are weighing on your life, those circumstances that, that Jalen was talking about, are things that seem to rob you of your voice. You see these words on the screen, you can like, I can't legitimately and honestly sing that because that's not how I feel right now. And I just want to encourage you in this. When you see words on the screen that you can't sing as your current reality, just kind of make that your prayer because the Lord wants to hear from you. If you follow the lead of the great psalmist, David, that's exactly what he did. He would describe in detail his problems and then just kind of back his way into just praising God. And he may not have known him or felt him in that way in that moment, but it was aspirational. He wanted to. And so you can always take those words from the screen and make them your prayer if they are not your current position in the Lord. So don't ever allow Satan to rob you of your voice in worship because the stuff piling on doesn't allow your life to look real time like what you saw on the screen. Okay? Amen? Can we do that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's pray and let's get into today's word. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, we are thankful to you for every opportunity to open the sacred pages and stand behind the sacred desk. Uh, this is your word. These are your people. Uh, these are your gifts. You gave them to the body that your people will be perfected, edified, and equipped for the work of ministry. We pray, oh God, that you would move every ounce of us out of the way that is non-essential to the work you want to do so that uh, exactly what you've intended through the moment of preaching would take place in our lives. 
Show us our world more clearly through the window of your word and show us ourselves more clearly through the mirror of your word. Bring about a conviction, O oh God, regardless of how uncomfortable it might be, and then bring about, Lord God, execution, regardless of how sacrificial it may cause us to be. Lord God, we need you in this moment from both the speaker to the hearer. Lord God, and we just ask that you would just come and uh, invade this space and uh, completely take over. We hand the steering wheel over to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so as you know, we are working through the book of Philippians, specifically with a view toward our identities. We kind of do a little bit of a quiz every week, and why stop now? Uh, real quick, just a little bit of a family feud. Maybe this is one family, and that's one family. Who can start naming these identities? Which one speaks to our prayer life? Dependent children, that's right. Which one of them speaks to our generosity? That's right. Which one speaks to our focus on the gospel? Gospel-centered believers, that's right, the one we're covering today. Which one speaks of, which one is expressed through this idea of the way up is down? Servant leaders, ooh, ooh, this side of the church is winning. All right, all right, who can tell me, bonus round, which one we've missed? Responsible siblings, oh, the left side of the church stole. All right. All right, so good stuff, good stuff. I love um, just kind of your, your, your ongoing commitment to knowing those and, and living throughout them. We just pray that they are not just words of affirmation, but they are also the stuff that we are living by and through. And so this morning, as we've already discussed, I'm going to be covering uh, gospel-centered believers, talk about what it means to have the gospel at the center. And so... Um, just by way of participation, because you're going to help me preach this, when I'm coming down, we're going to talk as a family. Is that okay? All right, good. I haven't started sweating yet, and I brought my rag. Um, so how many people, um, uh, maybe one of your service providers like a Hulu or a Netflix or like an Amazon Prime, occasionally will send you uh, uh, some documentation asking for your consent? Because what they're doing is telling you they've updated their policy on how they use your information, whether or not they can and can't sell it, how they share it, how they are paying attention to your viewing preferences and how they might use that information to curate a better entertainment experience for you. How many people have, have had to see that? And then you scroll down after reading that if you've read it in detail and you have to agree to that, right? If you want to, you know, continue participating in that, in that application. How many folks maybe uh, as a student, right, the school passes out like a student handbook, a code of ethics, uh, 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 some, a behavioral uh, uh, thing, and you read through it if you want to. But at the end of that documentation, you're expected to do what? check a box or to sign acknowledging that you agree to these things as a condition of your continued participation in that school as a student, right? It's not a thing that you can just skip past. How many of you maybe on your jobs on an annual basis, this is probably that time of year that HR has sent out uh, various uh, pieces of documentation talking about, you know, what equals harassment and discrimination and all that kind of stuff. And they've defined what they stand for and thereby what they stand against. And as a condition of your continued employment, you're asked to do what? Sign that, to consent to that. So in every space in life, maybe it's a, 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 maybe a, a field trip permission form from your kid's school, but in almost every space in life, someone is always asking for our consent. And we typically blindly give our consent depending on how comprehensive the documentation is. And, uh, but, but when we give our consent, it doesn't always mean that we agree with every single thing that we just signed off on. 
And we've grown to, to, to live life like that in our respective spaces and in this country because what? We just want to get on to the next thing. Whatever is on the other side of I don't need any documents, you know, jamming up my ability to see my show. I don't want any weird documentation jamming up my kids' ability to go on this field trip because they're going to nag me all day about why they didn't get a chance to go. I don't need anybody telling me I can't work here anymore because I wouldn't sign up for this, right? So in every space in life, it's really about just getting on to the next thing. Well, when it comes to the gospel, for us as a church, there is no such thing as getting on to the next thing. At the core, the documentation of the church is the message of the gospel. And I'll be honest with you, as I'm getting out here and as you, I think you are also feeling and seeing it, as you're sharing your faith, you grow to quickly realize that there are some people who are simply consenting to this body of ideas, but don't necessarily have any intentions of embodying those ideas. I remember one time talking to a former classmate on uh, Facebook, if anybody still uses that, right? So anyway, we're on Facebook, and this was some years ago, and uh, this brother was just lighting the church up. I mean, he was just going in on pastors and how bad the church was, and so I decided to just, rather than engage him in an ego fest out front with everybody else, I came around and, and, and you know, sent him a little private message, a DM or whatever, and I was like, hey, man, what's the deal? What's going on? And, and so I said, I asked him straight up. What are your thoughts about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And here's the most clever response of consent, but non-agreement I've ever heard. I never questioned it. He said, I never questioned it. You see, we can't live like that. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't something that's just a passing piece of church legislation that we never question. That we just say, well, that's just part of the body of stuff that they believe in. No, we are called to not just consent to the gospel, but to consistently embody the gospel. And that's the, the talk that we're going to have today. We as believers are called and expected to not just consent to it as one of the core messages or one of the big things or one of the top ten focuses of churches and pastors. We are called to do more than simply consent to the gospel as a body of beliefs, but we are called to actually embody it consistently. And that's what we're going to talk about today when we walk through this message entitled, uh, well, the, the focus, which is gospel, being gospel-centered believers. All right, you ready? You're going to help me preach. If you got your Bibles with you, um, turn with me to the place where we just started. That is Philippians chapter 3. We're going to move down to about uh, verse uh, 2 or 3 and start some reading. Actually, we're going to move to verse 7. Verse 7. We'll start there. And you're going to help me tease out kind of our big four points that we're going to cover today. You're going to help me with them in the passage. Can you do that? Yes, amen. I appreciate that, Melissa, right? <laughs> so, so as we look at this, uh, they're on the screen, and I'll read. And we're, can you read them together? Can we read them? All right, start with verse 7. Um, what does it mean to be a gospel-centered believer? I believe the Bible answers this question for us very clearly and candidly. And here's one of the first answers. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. Pause. If you are gospel-centered, what's one of the first things that changes in your life? And it's right there on the screen. Your values. Who said that? Yeah, well, nice job. Your parents are here. You better hit the buzzer, right? Yeah, yeah. Your values change. 
Your values change. When the gospel moves to the center, your values change. Paul's value system changed. You hear all this language about gain and loss, what he considered to be gain and what he considered to be losing based on him being found in Christ. Now, there's something else in there that changes. It may be a little bit more obscure, but it's clearly on the page. And it says here, because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things. And we skipped it. No, we didn't. More than that, I also considered everything to be lost in view. My views will change. When the gospel moves at the center, my values will change and my views will change if I'm living a gospel-centered life. Let's keep reading. So uh, I also consider everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them to be filth so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God based on faith. Here it is. Here's another one. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We just hit another one. The point will start with the letter V, but it's not that obvious in the Bible. You're going to have to use a little bit more of that cerebrum to get this one. You ready? What else is changing in Paul's life based on this relationship with Christ? You said it. You said it. Say it out loud. Say it with your chest. That's right. Goals. Right. His goals are changing. So his vision of the good life, his vision of where life should go, what a person should be doing, what a person should be aiming for. So when the gospel is at the center, my values change, my what? My views change, and my Vision of the good life changes. There's something else found in the passage also. This one is even more. It's not obscure, but you've got to let that what? That, you've got to let that cerebrum work to find this one. All right? For my goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. I may have to help you tease this one out a bit. But what in the world is wrong with Paul? How can a person lunge into, long for, and seemingly like suffering and walk into suffering in a way that they actually see it as having value in their life. A person can only do that if they are loving and lunging after Christ and looking at the gospel in a way that not only changes their values, their views, and their vision, but also changing their will. And the V word for one's will is what? Come on, SAT people. Who said volition? <sighs> Travis. Yes, sir. All right, so these are the four biggies that we're going to be talking about today, and that is how a gospel-centered life changes our what? Our values, our views, our vision, and also our volition. How exactly does that happen? Now, I want to tell you a little bit of a secret. Everybody has a gospel, but it's not always the gospel. And see, whatever you value, whatever is shaping your values, whatever is shaping your views, whatever is curating your vision of the good life, and whatever is, is really promoting and pumping your will and enabling you and empowering you to make decisions, that is your gospel. So you could actually take this and, and look at all of the indicators that are behind this, and they will point to the very thing that has become your gospel. Now, tell, now listen to me very carefully. All of us, when we grow up and when we come into this world, when you are born, you and I have a value system. 
We are developing it. We don't call it a value system, but we very quickly develop a value system through our respective accomplishments, through our culture, through, our, through, 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 through things that feel good and don't feel good, our social efforts, our piety and our morality. If you notice that list, that's all the stuff that Paul said in the previous verses. He said, I no longer place confidence in the flesh. But if you want to roll out a fleshly resume, if you wanted somebody who had confidence in the flesh, he says, I'm your boy. Look at me. When it comes to, to, to being amongst the circumcision, I long, long, I'm following the spirit of the Lord, but I put now my boast and confidence in Christ. He says, but, but if you want to do that, if you want to put confidence in the flesh, check me out. I was circumcised on the eighth day. As soon as I got here, eight days old, I came from a family that followed the law. I was born into this thing doing it right. He says, not only circumcised on the eighth day, but I was of the nation of Israel. I wasn't, I wasn't a convert. I wasn't a proselyte. I didn't import. I, wasn't a, I, I didn't migrate to it. I just been in it from day one, from day zero, right? So if you want to talk about tenure and duration, Paul says, I got you. Paul goes forward. He says, listen, he says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I, I have a very distinct lock on my legacy and heritage. I know who I am and what contribution my people made to the grand narrative of redemptive history of Scripture. I'm a Hebrew, born of Hebrews. Again, not a proselyte, not coming from the outside. I wasn't somebody who saw the God of the Bible working in Israel like the Ninevites and was like, yay, can I get on board with that? No, I was there from day one. Paul says, if anybody's got a resume, it's me. And then he says, listen, concerning the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, I persecuted the church. Regarding righteousness in the law, I was blameless. I kept up with the sacrificial system. You couldn't even look at my spiritual report card and see where I, if I had failed in the law, I followed through on the law by doing all of the rudimentary things necessary at the temple to get this off my record. I got a clean driving record when it comes to Judaism. Like literally Paul would probably be the modern day equivalent of a quadruple doctorate. He's got a law degree. He's probably got his uh, law in Jewish, uh, a degree in Jewish history. He's got his THD in theology. He's also highly steeped in Roman culture. I mean, he's got it all working for himself. But all of that, he turns around and says, if you want to go resume, resume, I got you. But I count all of that to be lost. What could possibly happen in a person's life to cause them to take all of those accomplishments, all of that legacy, all of that ethnic heritage, pride, and value, and just say, that is not just lost. I didn't just set it aside in a box in my basement. He said, I considered it to be lost. In some versions, it says dung. King James. I got any King James folks in the house? Other Bibles say rubbish, right? If you don't like that, if that's a little too low for you, rubbish. He said, this is garbage. It's not just old keepsakes. It's not just medals from my high school days that I've not forgot about and they're just dusty. He says, this is garbage to me. I took it to the end of the driveway, set it on fire, poured the ashes in the river, right? And so our value system should be radically changed by the gospel coming into our lives. Now, again, what actually changes our value system? I said that we're all born with the value system. What changes this value system that we're born with are our experiences, things that bring us pleasure, things that bring us accolade, things that give us credit, things that give us insight. These, these are all the things. So when you're a little kid, I mean, the, it, it helps you to detail what in your life will equal treasure and what will be trash and all things in between, right? So when you're a little kid, it's like... Ice cream, good. Naps are bad. Got to come inside and stop playing with my friends. Then you live a bit longer, and it's like ice cream, bad, because it's, you know, I'm avoiding sugar, you know, and I'm lactose intolerant. 
You know, nap's good, right? <laughs> Value system completely reversed. I can't wait to get home. Can I sleep at my desk? Can I sleep in the, during lunch in the parking lot, in my car? Right? Amen. I got some amens. I see that hand. But our value system gets shaped over time through experiences, and we begin to associate certain values with those experiences. So then, the assumption from the Bible is that when you encounter Christ legitimately, not just consent to the gospel as some kind of documentation from heaven's HR department, but when you really consent to the gospel, when you really decide to place faith in Christ, he is the best experience ever and totally reorients your value system to what is really treasure and what is really trash. This is why the gospel affects our value system. And it should affect our value system. And so let me just give you some, some ideas. So, so, so the Bible gives us many, many verses about the things that we should boast in. Because whatever we boast in is a source of our confidence. And whatever is our boast and our confidence is usually the thing that is shaping our value system. So look at these verses here. We're going rapid fire, but I'll, I'll call them out so you can write them down. Psalm 34, verse 2. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Psalm 44 and 8, in God we have boasted all delayed long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. Jeremiah 9, 24, but let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That's the Lord talking. And that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Psalm 27. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Romans 15, 17, therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. Philippians 1, 26, so that your proud confidence, that is boasting, in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Hebrews 3, 6, but Christ was faithful, a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope uh, firm until the end. Galatians 6.14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has crucified me, to me, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Over and over again, the Bible uses this word boast and confidence. Now, the reason that I use them interchangeably is because in the underlying language, it is also used interchangeably. Now, what's interesting about the way the Bible uses this word boast or confidence is it, 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 it looks as if the way the language is, it's, it's, it's this unique verb, participle, and the tense of it seems to suggest that the things that we place confidence in, we didn't have to look for them. They came looking for us. So if I could give it to you like this, like, um, um, hey there, how are you? Who are you? <laughs> I'm your degree. You should walk around this place a little bit differently. Don't you realize that you're the subject matter expert in this topic? Right? This is how our accomplishments appeal to us. Hey, psst, 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 who are you? What do you mean, who am I? I'm your W-2. Look at me in the top right corner. That's how much money you made. Man, you're killing it. Let's walk with your shoulders back in here. Look how much empowerment you got. These are how the things in our lives. Hey, man, who are you? Hey, man, I'm the way your wife looks. She's hot. You're not. <laughs> right? This one is for me, right? Because everybody knows I'm the proverbial toad in our relationship that's been kissed by the, the princess. Right? <laughs> that's my wife over there. A little bit of embarrassment for her. But... 
But the bottom line is we have all of these fixtures in our lives that appeal to us and they cry out to us. And if we're not careful to keep them from the center, they crowd the center. They become the source of our boasts and our confidence. How much money I made. Well, you, psst, psst. hey, hey, come here. Who are you? Who am I? I'm your promotion. Hey, man, this is your new job title. Go in there and tell them what they're supposed to be doing. Right? So our, our, everything that we do in life, all these experiences, they just constantly appeal to us and give us this fresh sense of fleeting confidence. Now, I'm not suggesting that those things are evil in any way, but they are definitely not eternal. And so when we encounter Christ, we finally find something that we can boast in that does not age, does not get old, does not expire, does not wrinkle, cannot be expended or chewed up in a stock market, that cannot burn up on the corner right, that cannot be taken if someone puts their elbow in the front seat window, we immediately find in Christ, wow, something that truly is enduring that I can hang my hat on. It's Christ and what he's done for me and his faithfulness to me. These are the places where the scriptures call us to place great confidence. The Lord is so kind and faithful because what the Father does providentially it leads us through a series of experiences in life that allow us to see how fleeting anything other than Jesus we have, we're holding on to. And then it's the Holy Spirit, if you've got him inside, who constantly convicts and says, you remember that message that Pastor Rod preached? This is what he's talking about. This is the other thing that you hold on to. Or maybe you just read the passage yourself and the Holy Spirit, his job is to illuminate the scriptures and to give you real-time understanding of what this passage is and how it works in regular everyday life. And the Holy Spirit goes, you see this thing that you've loved forever? Now it's shaky. Now it can't deliver. Now it can't perform. Now it can't do what you want it to do. Why do you place so much confidence in that? And this is what the Holy Spirit does, constantly shaking our cage. Now do you see why you need to place your full hope and confidence in Christ? And so listen to me. When it comes to being gospel-centered, I'll be the first one to admit, I don't have anything in my life that I knowingly want to put above Jesus, but man, do I have some stuff that I'd love to have at the same time. Will anybody else admit that I'm, I'm good with having Jesus, but man, I, I would like my other hand on this stuff over here too. Jesus, you're not, Jesus, you're not angry. I got two, two things in my heart. Can we, can we scoot a throne right next to yours? I could even make it a smaller throne. But this thing speaks to me. And the Lord is constantly, the Holy Spirit in particular, is constantly evicting people off of the throne of our hearts. And the way that that eviction takes place is by the Lord allowing us to see experiences where that thing cannot deliver. That thing cannot serve as Lord. That thing cannot save. And we must have a Christ, an enduring king, who is sovereign over all. And so... When the gospel is at center, my values will change. Here it is, bottom line. Whatever is the basis of my boast is also the anchor of my value system. So my values will change. Verse 8, we said that our views will change. Take a look with me, if you will, at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 18. For the love of Christ controls us. Some of your Bibles will say constrained, but the verse we're using here says controls us. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
For now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we were once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and the old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come, and all this is from God, who through Christ is reconciling us to himself. And then, oh, I love this, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. My view of the world changes because when I come to Christ and I really not just consent to the gospel, but I embody the gospel, I recognize that the same ministry of reconciliation to which I was a beneficiary of, I have now been made a steward of. I'm officially drafted in as a minister of reconciliation, a facilitator of reconciliation everywhere that I go. Now, how does that change my views? That changes my views in this way. When I see a prostitute, and I go, ooh, I can't believe that. That prostitute is, that, that, that woman is a prostitute. No, that prostitute is a woman needing of reconciliation. I, I, I want to do a little exercise, and this is going to be painful, intentionally so. This is designed not to hurt, but to stretch us out of our comfort zone. If you would, close your eyes for a second. Give me five seconds. Close your eyes. And I want you to pull up the name and or face of the person in your life who you are having the least success loving consistently. This is a boss. This is a spouse. This is a molesting uncle. This is a nagging, self-righteous, in your words, sibling. This is a mom or a dad who never accepted you for who you were. This is, this is, this is, a, this is a college roommate who, who, who started a salacious rumor about you that went like wildfire on the campus and you could never look anybody else in your friend circle in the eyes again. Five seconds. The person in your life who you have the least tendency, the least reflex to love you think about that person for a moment. As you consider who that person is, I want to challenge you to know this, that as you are striving to be gospel-centered, this person is your final exam for gospel centrality. You can open your eyes. I love the obedience in this place, right? Open your eyes. Now, here's what I want you to understand. My daughter, when she went off to college, one of the great rude awakenings for a college freshman is, depending on what kind of high school you went to, is the value and the relationship between quizzes and final exams. Uh, and so, uh, you know, in high school she went to, graduated with above a 4.0, salutatorian, bam, bam, bam. You know, you know my daughter, she's smart. You go to college, you got these weekly quizzes, and weekly quizzes don't have as much weight in college. Weekly quizzes are just checkpoints to confirm that you're keeping up with the reading. But the real, the real enchilada is that comprehensive semester exam which if you have just been reading and skimming and checking the boxes, but not really making that information central, if you really don't have a grasp on your understanding, you will not pass the exam, and you will repeat that exam. Israel did the same thing. This is why it took them 40 years versus four, four, versus four weeks to get to the promised land, because there were certain lessons that God was teaching, and they kept failing the exam. They took for granted, and I'm, and I'm telling you, this right here, these are quizzes. Coming to church regularly, that's a quiz. Uh, uh, Bible reading plan, that's a quiz. It's valuable. 
It's useful, but that's a quiz. The final exam is that person, that name, that face that pulled up when you say, I can't stand this person. I'd want to, Lord, help me focus on something else. I'll put that on the back burner and come back to it later. No, God, God says, gospel centrality says you are a facilitator of reconciliation. I gave you a ministry of which you were the first object. Now you export that same love and forgiveness that I extended to you when you were at your worst. You now give it to the person when they need it at their worst. Gospel centrality rather than self but, but you know what the self-centered response to the ministry of reconciliation is? We heap the benefits of God having reconciled us, to, reconciled us to him, and we sing about that, we love that, and we enjoy that. We should, and we keep the relationship vertical. We never let the great truths of reconciliation become horizontal. We stop shy of that. We say, well, I don't have the energy for that. The Lord is going to have to change them to move them toward me. When did we move toward God? This is why we place our boast in Christ. We held our position of sinfulness against God. We shook our fist toward heaven, and he chased us down. He didn't wait for us to scoot toward him. It'll change my views. Gospel centrality will change my values, and it will change my views. It will change my view of the sinner. What on earth could cause the Apostle Paul and others like him to consistently run back into cities that had stoned them and left them for dead, beat them, and that they knew that they were coming into imprisonment? But yet you, you take the long way around the office because you don't want to lock eyes with a, with a crabby boss? The natural self is self-centered. And here are the ways that we know it. We evaluate others based on appearance, performance, and propensity. Propensity is their tendency to change. We give up on relationships. You know, man, I can't stand this person and how they act and how they move. But appearance, that's one of the least of these. But performance, oh man, we hold people hostage to their performance over and over again. They haven't acted right in the past, and, and I've already made an assessment of their propensity. Guess what? Minus the grace of God, guess what your propensity was? It took the grace of God to dissolve our wicked hearts, to make us even curious about the gospel. It took the grace of God to, to cause us to darken the doors of a church. It took the grace of God for us to even ask anyone, what is this whole thing of the gospel about? And it was God constantly sprinkling and peppering and arresting and grabbing. But yet, we've been given that same ministry of reconciliation, and we're like, you know what, that person doesn't have a righteous propensity. They're not moving toward me. They're not meeting me halfway. They aren't doing their part. They aren't carrying their weight. You and I did not carry our weight. <sighs> Zach, am I being too mean? Okay. <laughs> All right. I have to check in. Thank you, my brother. All right. So here's the deal. The final exam when it comes to gospel centrality and the change in my views is simply this. What does my ministry look like toward the least lovable person in my life? By all means, take advantage of the low-hanging fruit. By all means, pull over to the side of the road, jump out, and rescue that puppy that's going to get run over in rush hour traffic. By all means, give a donation to missions. By all means, 
continue to pat people on the back who do good things and you see them and you want to encourage them. By all means, volunteer to be a part of the choir. By all means, stand on the door and be a greeter. By all means, take those quizzes of faithfulness. But by all means, don't think that will exempt you from the final exam because you will repeat it over and over and over until you bring the ministry of reconciliation into the least lovable relationship in your life. It will stay there. You will not be able to clap. You will not be able to place out through other works. You will not be able to go around it. You will not be able to stand before God and say, well, well Lord, I know I completely ignored this one relationship, but I'm just going to, you know, I just figured I'd uh, to take care of all this other stuff. Somebody had to do it. Nah. Now, I'm not saying this is a condition of heaven. Don't get me wrong, please. But what I am saying is that thing that we're trying to avoid because it's difficult, it won't go away through avoidance. It's the test of whether or not we are living a life of true gospel centrality and whether or not we have been made conformable to the image of Christ or whether or not we have just consented to the history of his great work on the cross and sang about it. Point number three. Well, let's do this. No, not three yet. When the gospel is at the center, change is how I see myself and others. I become a minister of reconciliation and they officially become my targets. Verse 10a. Message gets faster from here, I promise. Paul said these words, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. What does this mean? And we said that this was an indication that my vision changes, right? My vision, my vision to his goal, his, what he considers to be the good life is not the sum total of things that he can amass to himself, but the good life is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. How many, uh, how many uh, former um, blueprinters we got in here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all remember Sea Dog? Corwin Oglesby, y'all know him? So he and I went to uh, school together, eighth grade to 12th grade. I didn't see Corwin, me and Corwin last saw each other when we were 17, and we were in our 40s the next time we saw each other at an ATM in Conyers. And uh, man, we walked up and we dapped, we high-fived, we chest bumped, we did all of the traditional black handshake kung fu stuff. My man, where you at? We was killing him, 15 minutes. People was like, can you guys hurry and get your cash, right? We hadn't seen each other in years. But here's the deal. I knew a lot about Corwin. Not from the high school days. We were Facebook boys. I knew he had torn his Achilles. I knew he got married. I knew he had kids. I knew he lived in Conyers. I knew he had a dog. I knew all of this kind of stuff about him. But that doesn't mean that I know him. I knew a bunch of details about him. Regardless of how fraternal we can appear in public when we bump into each other over at Blueprint, wow, what's up, man? You remember, you, you remember your boy Curtis when he fell down the stairs of school? Yes. But being able to reminisce over the old details of our relationship doesn't mean that we know each other at a deep level the way that Christ is calling us to know him because we grew up in church, because we grew up in Sunday school, because we went to Catholic school, because we went to Gospel Hope 101, because we went to Equip. We give out data and facts and material, but we have to embody that. If you want to know Christ, you've got to press it to the person, not just to the particular details of the gospel message. Romans puts it this way. Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 7 says something very telling. Therefore, we were buried with him. And by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in the newness, new way of life. 
For if we ourselves have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now that sounds like some sweet by and by talk. I look forward to that, being raised in the likeness of his resurrection. But look at verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified and with him, and in order that sin's dominion no longer may have, uh, it may be abolished. It has no longer have dominion over us. So that we may no longer be enslaved to it, since the person who has died is free from the claims of sin. The Bible calls us to a present-day dependency upon the same Holy Spirit that got Jesus out of the grave. The Bible says, Romans chapter 6, read it for yourself. The same Holy Ghost that raised Jesus from the dead, resides in the believer, gives us not just a technical and theoretical dominance over sin, but it says that we now have power to live a new life current state. So the promise of the resurrection is not just pie in the sky when we finally pierce heaven. The promise of the resurrection power is to be known right now in the active fight over sin. So the person who appeared in your eyes when you closed them that you can't stand, detest, and see your way of loving, the Lord is saying, I didn't ask you to do it in your strength. What about the Holy Spirit's strength? Now we've been backed into a corner because no one can say, well, I just need a little bit more time. No! The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, and he's at work with him. He's giving me power over sin. That includes all my sin. The gospel, when the gospel is at the center, it changes my goals in the immediate and in the ultimate. In the previous example, I asked you to close your eyes and think about the one person you had the most difficulty loving. In this example, I would ask you to close your eyes and think about the one sin you have the greatest difficulty overcoming. And how we can sometimes dance around that and say, you know what, that's just me. I've always been weak in that area. And the Holy Spirit says, nah, <laughs> that's the final exam. It's cool that you stop lying, cheating, coveting, that you don't have any idols in your basement, that you're not bowing down to any gods before me. I love that. That's quiz. That's quiz work. That's quiz material. That's, that, that's quiz that you remember the Sabbath day and keeping it holy, that you're honoring your father and your mother. That's a quiz. But can you, can you bring the gospel into the center of your life where it does surgery and work on the most consistent, frequent most damaging sin that is a reoccurring theme in your life. Can you bring it there? Because if you can't bring the gospel to that center, it'll be you who says, well, I want to nurse that and hold on to it. I need a little bit more time. That's us being self-centered. Finally, verse 10b. <clears throat> 10b reads this way. My goal, will ten, all the 10, let's just get it. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. Oh, Paul, something's wrong with you. I don't know if this is part of my ministry and the fellowship of his sufferings. His goal is to have fellowship with Jesus' suffering. What's wrong with Paul? Is this just apostolic, preacher, big-time, international missionary stuff? Who in regular life wants to be identified with the Lord's sufferings? What could be the value of that? Who wants that, gospel-centered people? Because you're not operating according to self and its comforts. You're not operating according to your own power, strength, and what you think should be done. And so when the gospel is at the center, we even have a change in our will. We develop a desire for things that might even have to our past life seem counterintuitive. 
Now, this is not him calling us into reckless living. Look at Paul's description of what this would look like. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, and that is your spiritual worship. Remember, so now worship, the, ra- the, the, so the, the, the game has been raised. So you mean to tell me that the worship we do in here is not my only worship? That my worship is to, is to lend myself as an actual sacrifice to the work of God? This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may discern what, good, what is good, pleasing, and the perfect will of God. This is a constant, ongoing work. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Here's Paul defining what it looks like to be one who, is, who, who, who enjoys the fellowship of the Lord's suffering. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. Extraordinary power from God and not from us. For we are pressured in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted but not abandoned. We are struck down but not destroyed. We are always carrying the death of Jesus in our body so as to live so that the life of Christ may be also revealed in our body. For we who live are always given over to death because of Jesus so that Jesus' life may be revealed in our mortal flesh. So death works in us that life may work in you. God wants to put on a show of his resurrection power through the way that we suffer. And so I'll just put it this way very simply. When the gospel is at the center, it changes the suffering narrative from negative to redemptive. How many people know that suffering is going to happen anyway? It is a part of the fallen, fragile, brief human agenda. No matter how much you and I try to avoid suffering, we will always find ourselves both internally, externally, socially, relationally, we'll always find ourselves in some brand of suffering. But when we take that suffering and say, oh, okay, Lord, what are you teaching in this class? This is supposed to help me further identify with the resurrection. Let me see what your power looks like versus this. Oh, Lord, let me see what your power looks like when it works on depression. Let me see what your power looks like when it looks like when, when it's focused on a, a bankruptcy. Oh, let me see what your power looks like, oh, God, when it looks like self-defeat. Oh, let me see what your power looks like when it looks like when, it, when, it, when it's aimed at joblessness. Let me see what your power looks like when it, when, it, when, it, when, it, when it grabs hold of a busted marriage. Let me see what your power looks like when it grabs hold of it seeming like everything in my life is crumpling. Let me see what the resurrection looks like here. The Lord wants to show off in our lives through the platform of our suffering. Not like some kind of surprise birthday party where we bust in, oh, look what Jesus did for me, I hit the lottery, and everything is super okay. No, it's through the platform of suffering that the Lord wants to prove the power of the resurrection. And so God calls us to consistently embody the gospel, not just consent to it. Not just consent. So again, when the gospel is at the center, it changes the suffering narrative from negative to redemptive. We're not trying to put on rose-colored glasses. We're putting on resurrection-colored glasses. Our Lord, our Lord laid down his life and endured betrayal. People for whom he could have broke their necks in a heartbeat, he let them press a crown of thorns into his head, take his clothes and rip them up, hang him from a cross nude, and in an embarrassing fashion, poking fun at him, lambasting his disciples, 
twisting his words, Jesus endured a great deal of suffering. More paramount than anything that we've ever encountered. Gloriously raised from the dead and says, I would lovingly want to invite you into this, but with the following guarantee. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be in there with you. And there's nothing that you can encounter that will overcome you, regardless of what the pressure seems like. Because I want to use you as a working witness to the world. Not only do I want you to be gospel-centered, but I want you to be a gospel-center so that people look at your life and say, how in the world did you overcome that? And we get a chance to say, well, you know, me and my family, we always had that strong moral constitution and will. No! So that you can tell the story of your Christ. Some of your suffering is a beautiful setup for sharing the gospel. A beautiful setup. The Lord is just asking you to yield it to him. Some of your greatest sins, a beautiful setup. Many of, many of us are probably wondering, man, when will I have anybody in my life that I can share the faith with? Man, when you'll get transparent with the weight. When, when, when you'll allow the world to see how he's beautifully and magnificently delivered you. So in that, in that, in that, I want to I encourage you in this way. Two really simple applications. They ain't for Monday. They're not for just next week. They're not even for the month of March. They're for the rest of your life. Can we do this? Here's, here's how I'd like for you to do this. We said we want to be a church that displays a reconciling hope for the gospel. And that display is both vertical and horizontal. I want to beg you every day of your life that you can remember to make Christ your boast. Start the day and end your day with ways in which you brag on Jesus to him. Can we do that? I mean, is that a hard task? And I'd like to ask horizontally that you would take your devotional life, whether it be your Bible reading plan or whatever you do for devotions, and you would take your devotions and take at least one thing and make it actionable in the lives of some of your horizontal relationships. At least one. Pick one horizontal relationship that you're going to make a devotional investment in. You learn something about God vertically, and now you want to display that in an actionable and a behavioral way in, in one of your relationships horizontally. That's all I'm asking you to do. And I'm not asking you to do it for a week. I'm asking you to do it for the rest of your life. I'm asking you to join me in embodying the ethic of the gospel. Worship the Lord daily. Pray to him without ceasing. Brag on Jesus often. Make him your confidence. Talk about him even when you don't feel like it. Brag on the work of Jesus to him and to yourself. Talk about how good and great your God is. And then take at least one truth from that devotional time and put it to work in your horizontal relationships. Can you do that? Can we do that for the rest of our time here on the planet? Is that too hard to ask? I don't think it's out of line with what the scriptures already called us to do. Amen. Let's be people who embody the gospel and not just consent to it because it sounds good. Father, in the name of Jesus, as we close, we thank you and we praise you for your great mercy, your great glory, your incredible work, your awesome wonder, your, your, your value. We may not be people of many words, but Lord God, give us something to brag about. And if we can't discover it in our own experience, let us just go to your word and read it back to you. I pray also, O Holy God and Father, that we would not let our worship, let our vertical relationship be the only one we have, that we would bring those truths of worship and put them to work in our horizontal relationships. 
with our fellow brothers and sisters, men and women that we find in the world. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.